You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can check out all the back episodes on youcan'tbeneutral.com, and you can find some links there, links to make a donation, and links to send me a message. You can also follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. COP26, the uh, climate summit sponsored by the UN in Glasgow, is over. And if we hadn't learned this previously, one of the major things we learned from it is that there are no major nations, those nations that have significant global power, that are willing to become leaders in fighting the climate crisis. Here's a piece that Greta Thunberg wrote. She wrote this before COP26, and this is published at theguardian.com. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, called the recent IPCC report on the climate crisis a code red for humanity. Quote, we are at the verge of the abyss, he said. You might think those words would sound some kind of alarm in our society. But like so many times before, this didn't happen. The denial of climate and ecological crisis runs so deep that hardly anyone takes real notice anymore. Since no one treats the crisis like a crisis, the existential warnings keep on drowning in a steady tide of greenwash and everyday media news flow. And yet, There is still hope, but hope all starts with honesty. Because science doesn't lie. The facts are crystal clear, but we just refuse to accept them. We refuse to acknowledge that we now have to choose between saving the living planet or saving our unsustainable way of life. Because we want both. We demand both. But the undeniable truth is that we have left it too late for that. And no matter how uncomfortable that reality may seem, this is exactly what our leaders have chosen for us with their decades of inaction, their decades of blah, blah, blah. Science doesn't lie. If we are to stay below the target set in the 2015 Paris Agreement and thereby minimize the risks of setting off irreversible chain reactions beyond human control, we need immediate, drastic, annual emission reductions, unlike anything the world has ever seen. And since we don't have the technological solutions which alone will do anything close to that in the foreseeable future, it means we have to make fundamental changes to our society. We are currently on track for at least a 2.7 degrees Celsius hotter world by the end of the century. And that's only if countries meet all the pledges that they have made. Currently, they are nowhere near doing that. We are, quote, 
seemingly light years away from reaching our climate action targets, to once again quote Guterres. In fact, we are speeding in the wrong direction. 2021 is currently projected to experience the second biggest emission rise ever recorded, and global emissions are expected to increase by 16% by 2030 compared with 2010 levels. According to the International Energy Agency, only 2% of governments, quote, build back better recovery spending has been invested in clean energy, while at the same time, the production and burning of coal, oil, and gas was subsidized by $5.9 trillion in 2020 alone. The world's planned fossil fuel production by the year 2030 accounts for more than twice the amount that would be consistent with the 1.5 degree Celsius target. This is science's way of telling us that we can no longer reach our targets without a system change because doing so would require tearing up contracts and abandoning deals and agreements on an unimaginable scale, something that is simply not possible in the current system. In short, we are totally failing to even reach targets that are completely insufficient in the first place. And that's not the worst part. In my own country, Sweden, a news investigation recently concluded that once you include all of Sweden's actual emissions... Territorial, biogenic, consumption of imported goods, burning of biomass, pension fund investments, and so on. Only one-third of the net total is accounted for in the country's climate targets. It is reasonable to assume that this is not just a Swedish phenomenon. Surely the first step to address the climate crisis should be to include all of our actual emissions into the statistics in order to obtain a holistic overview. This would allow us to evaluate the situation and start making the necessary changes. But this approach has not been adopted or even proposed by any world leaders. Instead, they all turn to communications tactics and PR in order to make it sure it seems as if they're taking action. One textbook example is the UK, a nation that is currently producing 570 million barrels of oil and gas each year, a nation with a further 4.4 billion barrels of oil and gas reserves to be extracted from the continental shelf, a nation that is also among the 10 biggest emitters in history. Our emissions stay in the atmosphere for up to a thousand years, and we have already emitted about 89% of the CO2 budget that gives us a 66% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius. This is why historical emissions and the aspect of equity not only count, they basically make up 90% of the entire crisis. Between 1990 and 2016, the UK lowered its territorial emissions by 41%. However, once you include the full scale of UK emissions, such as consumption of imported goods, international aviation and shipping, the reduction is more like 15%. And this is excluding burning of biomass, like at Drax's Selby plant, a heavily subsidized so-called renewable power plant. That is, according to analysis, the UK's biggest single emitter of CO2 and the third biggest in all of Europe. And yet the government still considers the UK to be a global climate leader. The UK is, of course, far from the only country relying on such creative carbon accounting. This is the norm. 
China, currently by far the world's biggest emitter of CO2, is planning to build 43 new coal power plants on top of the 1,000 plants already in operation, while also claiming to be an ecological trailblazer committed to leaving, quote, a clean and beautiful world to future generations. Or take the new U.S. administration claiming to, quote, listen to science, even though it, among many other reckless decisions, recently announced plans to open millions of acres for oil and gas that could ultimately result in production of up to 1.1 billion barrels of crude oil and 4.4 trillion cubic feet of fossil gas. Being by far the biggest emitter in history, as well as the world's number one oil producer, doesn't seem to embarrass the U.S. while it claims to be a climate leader. And that is not to mention the U.S. military, which is one of the biggest greenhouse gas polluters in the world, as we'll see in a future story. The truth is, there are no climate leaders. Not yet. At least not among high-income nations. The level of public awareness and unprecedented pressure from the media that would be required for any real leadership to appear is still basically non-existent. Science doesn't lie, nor does it tell us what to do, but it does give us a picture of what needs to be done. We are, of course, free to ignore that picture and remain in denial, or to go on hiding behind clever accounting, loopholes, and incomplete statistics, as if the atmosphere would care about our frameworks, as if we could argue with the laws of physics. As Jim Skay, a leading IPCC scientist, put it, quote, Limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is possible within the laws of chemistry and physics, but doing so would require unprecedented changes. For the COP26 in Glasgow to be a success, it will take many things, but above all, it will take honesty, solidarity, and courage. The climate and ecological emergency is, of course, only a symptom of a much larger sustainability crisis, a social crisis, a crisis of inequality that dates back to colonialism and beyond, a crisis based on the idea that some people are worth more than others and therefore have the right to exploit and steal other people's land and resources. It's all interconnected. It's a sustainability crisis that everyone would benefit from tackling. But it's naive to think that we could solve this crisis without confronting the roots of it. Things may look very dark and hopeless, and given the torrent of reports and escalating incidents, the feeling of despair is more than understandable. But we need to remind ourselves that we can still turn this around. It's entirely possible if we are prepared to change. Hope is all around us. Because all it would really take is one, one world leader or one high-income nation or one major TV station or leading newspaper who decides to be honest, to truly treat the climate crisis as the crisis that it is. One leader who counts all the numbers and then takes brave action to reduce emissions at the pace and scale the science demands. Then everything could be set in motion towards action, hope, purpose, and meaning. The clock is ticking. Summits keep happening. Emissions 
keep growing. Who will that leader be? And now as we know that COP26 is over, uh, we know there was certainly not, that leader did not appear there and won't appear anywhere anytime soon. And as we'll hear in a later story, that leader has to be us. The people need to fill that vacuum. And, and the youth has started that motion. And more and more people need to get on board to make the change happen. I should say to force the change to happen. Because the people have little uh, natural power. I'm not sure natural is the right word. Little current actual power to make the changes but enough people working together do have power to force the people that quote unquote run things to do things differently next up a piece published at ecowatch.com written by whitney webb Last week, mainstream media outlets gave minimal attention to the news that the U.S. Naval Station in Virginia Beach has spilled an estimated 94,000 gallons of jet fuel into a nearby waterway less than a mile from the Atlantic Ocean. While the incident was by no means a catast as catastrophic as some other pipeline spills, it underscores an important yet little-known fact that the U.S. Department of Defense is both the nation's and the world's largest polluter. Producing more hazardous waste than the five largest U.S. chemical companies combined, the U.S. Department of Defense has left its toxic legacy throughout the world in the form of depleted uranium, oil, jet fuel, pesticides, defoliants like Agent Orange, and lead, among many others. In 2014, the former head of the Pentagon's environmental program told Newsweek that her office has to, has to contend with 39,000 contaminated areas spread across 19 million acres just in the U.S. alone. U.S. military bases, both domestic and foreign, consistently rank among some of the most polluted places in the world as perchlorate and other components of jet and rocket fuel contaminate sources of drinking water, aquifers, and soil. Hundreds of military bases can be found on the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's list of Superfund sites, which qualify for cleanup grants from the government. Almost 900 of the nearly 1,200 Superfund sites in the U.S. are abandoned military facilities or sites that otherwise support military needs, not counting the military bases themselves. Quote, Almost every military site in this country is seriously contaminated, John D. Dingle, a retired Michigan congressman and war veteran, told Newsweek in 2014. Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, is one such base. Lejeune's contamination became widespread and even deadly after its groundwater was polluted with a sizable amount of carcinogens from 1953 to 1987. However, it was not until this February that the government allowed those exposed to chemicals at Lejeune to make official compensation claims. Numerous bases abroad have also contaminated local drinking water supplies, most famously 
the Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa. In addition, the U.S., which has conducted more nuclear weapons tests than all other nations combined, is also responsible for the massive amount of radiation that continues to contaminate many islands in the Pacific Ocean. The Marshall Islands, where the U.S. dropped more than 60 nuclear weapons between 1946 and 1958, are a particularly notable example. Inhabitants of the Marshall Islands and nearby Guam continue to experience an exceedingly high rate of cancer. The American Southwest was also the site of numerous nuclear weapons tests that contaminated large swaths of land. Navajo Indian reservations have been polluted by long-abandoned uranium mines where nuclear material was obtained by U.S. military contractors. One of the most recent testaments to the U.S. military's horrendous environmental record is Iraq. U.S. military action there has resulted in the desertification of 90% of Iraqi territory, crippling the country's agricultural industry and forcing it to import more than 80% of its food. The U.S.'s use of depleted uranium in Iraq during the Gulf War also caused a massive environmental burden for Iraqis. In addition, the U.S. military's policy of using open-air burn pits to dispose of waste from the 2003 invasion has caused a surge in cancer among U.S. servicemen and Iraqi civilians alike. Remember when the uh, purported reason for us going to Iraq was weapons of mass destruction and the false and trumped-up fear that uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein had chemical weapons? Guess what? Virtually none of that was found anywhere in Iraq, and our military escapade there poisoned large areas of that country. While the U.S. military's past environmental record suggests that its current policies are not sustainable, This has by no means dissuaded the U.S. military from openly planning future contamination of the environment through misguided waste disposal efforts. Last November, the U.S. Navy announced its plan to release 20,000 tons of of environmental, quote, stressors, including heavy metals and explosives, into the coastal waters of the U.S. Pacific Northwest over the course of this year. The plan laid out in the Navy's Northwest Training and Testing Environmental Impact Statement fails to mention that these stressors are described by the EPA as known hazards, many of which are highly toxic at both acute and chronic levels. The 20,000 tons of stressors mentioned in the Environmental Impact Statement do not account for the additional 4.7 to 14 tons of, quote, metals with potential toxicity that the Navy plans to release annually from now on into inland waters along the Puget Sound in Washington State. In response to concerns about these plans, a Navy spokeswoman said that the heavy metals and even depleted uranium are no more dangerous than any other metal, a statement that represents a clear rejection of scientific fact. It seems that the very U.S. military operations meant to, quote, keep Americans safe come at a higher cost than most people realize, a cost that will be felt for generations to come both within the U.S. and abroad. And that story focused on the terrestrial and aquatic poison that the military has caused virtually everywhere the military has been, did not focus on the CO2 
and other gases and pollutants that the U.S. military releases globally that contribute to global warming and the climate crisis, all of which are part of what Greta referred to as the creative accounting that is not counting certain releases. The U.S. military's contributions to global warming and the climate crisis are not a part of the targets that the U.S. is pledging to reduce. Next up, a piece published at grist.org, written by Joseph Winters. Plastic permeates the oceans, clutters landfills, and threatens to create a, quote, near-permanent contamination of the natural environment, according to researchers. As if that weren't bad enough, it is also a major contributor to climate change. A new report from the advocacy group Beyond Plastics says that emissions from the plastic industry could overtake those from coal-fired power plants by the end of this decade. At every step of its life cycle, the report said, plastic causes greenhouse gas emissions that are jeopardizing urgent climate goals and harming marginalized communities. Quote, Plastic is intimately connected to the climate crisis, said Judith Enk, a former Environmental Protection Agency regional administrator and the founder of Beyond Plastics, at a press conference unveiling the report. Most people understand how plastic strangles the ocean and can cause health problems, she added, but far fewer have grasped its concerning climate footprint. Plastic is the new coal, Enk said. The report details 10 ways that plastic contributes to global warming, starting with its creation. Plastics are petroleum products, meaning they are made from materials produced by oil and gas wells. Most shale wells in the U.S. are fracked, a process by which liquid is injected deep into the ground to force out methane, ethane, and other gases. Beyond Plastics estimates that leakage at these fracking wellheads contributes an estimated 33 million metric tons of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere annually, an amount that is roughly equivalent to Denmark's total emissions in 2019. Even more greenhouse gas is leaked from pipelines that transport fracked gas to processing facilities. And the facilities themselves, ethane cracker plants that heat fracked gas to very high temperatures so it can be turned into plastic, are also, quote, super emitters of greenhouse gases, Enk said at the press conference for the new report. The U.S.'s 35 cracker facilities and the power plants that help them run release 63.5 million metric tons of greenhouse gases per year, just shy of Greece's total 2019 output. The petrochemical industry's plans for expansion could add an additional 38 million metric tons of GHG emissions annually by 2025. Plastic production doesn't just help warm the planet. The greenhouse gas emissions are typically accompanied by a slurry of potentially harmful chemicals that can make their way into the surrounding air, water, and soil. The resulting health issues affect nearby neighborhoods, which tend to be disproportionately non-white and lower income. Quote, There are some communities that have had facility after facility piled upon them, said Alex Baumstein, a senior lit litigation attorney with a Pennsylvania-based nonprofit, Clean Air Council. The Beyond Plastics report went on to describe millions more tons of planet-warming emissions that are associated with plastic after it is produced. 
According to the report, a staggering 24.5 million metric tons of greenhouse gases are released every year from just the blowing agents, compounds like hydrofluorocarbons in plastic insulation. Some of these agents can be over 1,400 times more potent in their heat-trapping capacity than CO2. Great news for keeping your house warm, but not so much once they start to accumulate in the atmosphere. Plastic insulation-related hydrofluorocarbons can leach into the air for decades after installation, the report said, and for years after that, once the insulation is landfilled. Plastic disposal also makes for an environmental issue. When plastic isn't recycled, which is almost always the case, it is often burned. Beyond Plastics estimates that in 2018, the incineration of plastic found in the U.S.'s municipal waste released nearly 13 million metric tons of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, as much as the emissions associated with almost 800,000 Americans in 2019. More plastic might be burned in so-called chemical recycling facilities that more often than not turn scrapped plastic back into fossil fuels to be burned. Even in the ocean, the final resting place for an eye-watering amount of the world's discarded wrappers, bags, and straws, plastic continues emitting. Although plastic is notoriously hard to break down, it can be degraded by sun and water, releasing potent greenhouse gases such as methane and ethane. All told, the Beyond Plastics report estimates that the U.S.'s production of plastic in 2020 caused about 210 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions, about as much as the 116 average-sized U.S. coal-fired power plants. And many experts expect that number to rise, as fossil fuel companies increasingly turn to plastic as a lifeline for their dying industry. In the past few years, big oil giants ranging from ExxonMobil and Shell to Saudi Aramco and Formosa have said they plan to increase their plastic production capacity. In 2018, the International Energy Agency predicted that petrochemicals would account for one-third of the growth in oil demand until 2030, and nearly half of it by 2050. In response to a request for comment, the Plastics Industry Association sent Grist a press release dismissing the Beyond Plastics report, saying that the organization had cherry-picked data, quote, to fit their narrative in order to raise more money for themselves and that plastic alternatives like glass or metal would have higher environmental impacts. A statement from Joshua Baca, vice president of plastics for another industry group called the American Chemistry Council, said that Beyond Plastics report failed to recognize plastics, quote, Many environmental benefits, such as increasing fuel efficiency by making cars and wind turbines lighter. Arthi Ananthanarianan, senior fellow at the Ocean Conservancy's Plastic Initiative, said that the report highlighted the need for policymakers to better regulate petrochemical producers. Quote, We have to start considering plastics as part of the fossil fuel industry, she said especially in advance of COP26, the climate conference where countries are set to renew their voluntary commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. In order for net zero or Paris alignment to be meaningful, they have to include plastic production. The Clean Air Council's Bomstein agreed, stressing the importance of holding the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries accountable for their impact on vulnerable communities. Quote, there's no right to kill people in order to make money, he said, but that's what these industries are doing. 
it's time for all of us, and especially policymakers, to say it is no longer acceptable. So, once again, where do we turn for leadership? The policymakers aren't showing it. The governments aren't showing it. Who out there among the powerful will take a stand? Well, it won't be the billionaires. This piece is written by Caitlin Johnstone. You can find it at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. Human civilization is being engineered in myriad ways by an unfathomably wealthy class who are so emotionally and psychologically stunted that they refuse to end world hunger despite having the ability to do so, to easily do so. The United Nations has estimated that world hunger could be ended for an additional expenditure of $30 billion a year, with other estimates considerably lower. The other day, Elon Musk became the first person ever to attain a net worth of over $300 billion. A year ago, his net worth was $115 billion. According to inequality.org, America's billionaires have a combined net worth of $5.1 trillion, which is a 70% increase from their combined net worth of under $3 trillion at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we're talking about a class which could easily put a complete halt to human beings dying of starvation on this planet by simply putting some of their vast fortunes towards making sure everyone gets enough to eat. But they don't. This same class influences the policies, laws, and large-scale behavior of our species more than any other. To get a sense of how insane this is, imagine if you had seen a video clip of me calmly watching a child drown to death in a swimming pool and doing nothing to help. After watching such footage, would it ever in a million years occur to you that I am someone who should be in charge of the entire world? I'm going to guess no. I'm going to guess that in the unlikely event that you ever decided anyone should rule the world, after watching me let a child drown, I'd rank somewhere near the very bottom of possible candidates. Now imagine, instead of letting one child drown, it was millions. That is how absolutely insane it is that we allow this class to shape our civilization. And we most certainly do allow them to shape our civilization. Take Bill Gates. He spends a fortune on narrative control, ranging from immense contributions to The Guardian to tens of billions of dollars in grants and he's committed hundreds of millions of dollars to shady political influence groups as well. He's been influencing COVID policies around the world, from intervening against the waiving of vaccine patent restrictions, to facilitating the worldwide rollout of digital vaccine passports. He's been giving countless media interviews about COVID-19 and vaccines, despite having no medical degree or indeed any qualifications at all apart from a net worth of $136 billion. This is after falsely pledging to give his immense fortune away over a decade ago. His net worth has more than doubled in that time. Jeff Bezos has been a contractor with the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA, 
and experts have claimed that Amazon is trying to control the underlying infrastructure of the economy. As sole owner of the Washington Post, he ensures that a hugely influential news outlet will always be staffed by people who will help manufacture consent for the status quo upon which his empire is built. And his grand vision for humanity involves shipping us off-world to breed in giant rotating space cylinders. Billionaires Reid Hoffman and George Soros have teamed up on a narrative control operation called Good Information, Inc., with the stated goal of countering misinformation and disinformation in the news media, and the unstated goal of elevating empire-authorized narratives about what's happening in the world and undermining unauthorized narratives. The World Economic Forum has laid out an agenda for giant corporations to move beyond their unofficial and unacknowledged role as unelected rulers of our world and become open partners in the governance of world affairs alongside our official elected governments with more power than ever before. There are almost infinite examples I could highlight, but I think my point is clear. Billionaires and billionaire corporations own our media, influence our thinking, manipulate our economies, interfere in our politics, determine the fate of our ecosystem, and shape our world. And they are the very least qualified among us to be doing so. Nobody who chooses day after day to let millions of people die of starvation has any business making decisions which affect other people, much less decisions which affect everyone. The fact that billionaire class and its lackeys make this depraved decision day in and day out permanently disqualifies them from any legitimate claim to having the empathy and compassion that would be required for such a job. They are too narcissistic and dysfunctional to be permitted to have any power or influence whatsoever, much less the ungodly amount they wield today. Billionaires should not exist. They should have their power and their wealth taken from them, and the steering wheel of humanity should be given to the ordinary people who are infinitely more qualified to navigate us through the rough waters ahead for our species. And this by Jeff Sparrow, published at jacobinmag.com. Elites won't save the planet. We need a mass movement. Ever since 1995, the United Nations has staged regular climate summits purportedly to facilitate cooperation between nations to limit emissions. Data from the Climate Investigation Center shows that at those events, the politicians have always been accompanied by a substantial corporate presence, with some big polluters sending delegations larger than entire nations. In some ways, the 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties COP26, simply represents more of the same. It is, after all, an event officially sponsored by Scottish Power, National Grid, SSE, Hitachi, Microsoft, NatWest, GSK, Reckitt, Unilever, and Sainsbury's. One of the main things that distinguishes this conference from those that have preceded it, however, is that this time far more corporations have come to view that there is profit to be made in renewable energy. It is on that basis that the former negotiator for Australia, Richie Merzian, approvingly called COP26 a, quote, trade show for climate change.
Increasingly, mainstream commentators enthuse about the prospect of big business adopting new technologies to pull the planet back from a climate disaster. But big business isn't going to save the world. The problem isn't simply that corporations often lie, using environmental rhetoric to greenwash their images. It goes much deeper than that. Capitalism must grow. Its blind search for profit might bring disaster, but it will still sniff out opportunities for expansion, indifferent to experience or consequences. As a result, even measures that might alleviate the environmental crisis become immediately weaponized against the planet. For instance, the panels that produce solar electricity have improved at a remarkable rate, offering a tantalizing glimpse of a future powered by the sun's limitless power. The advances made in renewables and associated technologies such as battery storage will play a huge role in any serious response to the environmental crisis. Yet researchers Richard York and Shannon Elizabeth Bell caution that capitalism has already undergone many previous energy transitions, from biofuels such as wood to coal, from coal to oil, from oil to natural gas, and now, potentially, from fossil fuels to renewables. They warn that no established energy source has undergone a sustained decline merely because a new one became available. More typically, rather than replacing the older source, the new source is immediately used to intensify growth and thus more overall energy use. In many cases, the addition of new sources has actually increased consumption of previous types of energy. The embrace of fossil fuels led, in relative terms, to a decline in biofuels. Yet, in absolute terms, the use of petroleum in logging trucks and mills greatly intensified deforestation and thus produced a net increase in the use of wood. Similarly, the rise of petroleum did not curtail trade in whale oil, but instead fostered a dramatic intensification of whaling, partly because whale ships became much more efficient, and partly because the industry developed new uses, such as margarine, for its products. It remains to be seen whether renewables will have the same effect. The available figures show a significant shift to renewable energy in terms of new capacity, with investment in renewables outpacing fossil fuels. Yet, internationally, the percentage of renewable energy as a proportion of electricity and other energy has been very slow to change. Renewable energy consumption has increased, but overall energy consumption has increased far, far more. There's no mystery as to why. In 1865, William Stanley Jevons published a book titled The Coal Question. The titular query centered on Britain's response to the rapid depletion of its coal stocks, with the book most remembered today because of Jevons' rejection of claims that technologically driven energy efficiency would alleviate the shortage. Quote, it is wholly a confusion of ideas to suppose, he said, that the economical use of fuel is equivalent to a diminished consumption. The very contrary is the truth. What he meant was that efficiency decreases price and thus encourages use, leading to a rebound that wipes out the supposed savings. The so-called Jevons paradox has been demonstrated over and over again in the years since. A prosaic example involves refrigerators, with the improvements of new models corresponding not to a decline in the overall environmental impact of white goods, but rather fostering a huge boom in the industry, 
and so a massive total rise in both energy consumption and carbon dioxide output. Because capital must expand technologies that in the abstract should reduce resource use, become the basis for a reorganization that enables fresh accumulation. The first generation of computer users will remember the claim that screen use would make paper redundant, something that palpably failed to occur, as computerization provided fresh markets supplying home and office printers. Likewise, the invention of synthetic alternatives did not mean that natural fibers were no longer used. Instead, their production massively expanded in parallel with the new options. Enthusiasts for green capitalism insist that as economies mature, their material footprint, the measure of their environmental impact, declines. In the digital era, they say, technological progress decouples capitalist growth from ecological damage, allowing the system to expand safely into infinity. Yet while some individual economies have reduced their dependence on non-renewable sources, they've generally done so by outsourcing dirty industries. As a meta-analysis of 179 studies between 1990 and 2019 put it, quote, No evidence for the needed kind of decoupling currently exists. On the contrary, the materials used by the global economy passed 100 billion tons per year, a disturbing new record, and the exact opposite of dematerialization. Quote, not only is there no empirical evidence that support the existence of a decoupling of economic growth from environmental pressures on anywhere near the scale needed to deal with environmental breakdown, explained a major 2019 report for the European Environmental Bureau, but also, and perhaps more importantly, such decoupling appears unlikely to happen in the future. Think of electric vehicles, EVs, a mode of transport far less destructive than internal combustion engines. Like solar power, EVs will surely play an important role in a sustainable future. Under capitalism, however, they've been seized upon by the automotive industry to preserve and extend car culture. Rather than reducing waste and decoupling transportation from material inputs, the automotive companies see opportunities to renew old markets in Europe and North America and to open fresh ones in places such as China. Their success in selling high-tech private vehicles will, accordingly, forestall sustainable options such as bicycles and public transport, push cities to maintain the wasteful infrastructure designed around cars, and foster a new and ruinous race for lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, and other rare materials needed for batteries. If the tendency of capitalism to respond to a crisis with more capitalism gives the system its disastrous momentum, it also provides the capitalists themselves with insulation from the consequences of their actions. The intensified commodification resulting from each fresh calamity creates opportunities for those with disposable wealth to ensure that they and their loved ones remain more or less unaffected. The planet might be growing unbearably hot, but if you have the money, you can still live in air-conditioned comfort in a pleasant location. In the midst of mass extinctions, luxury eco-resorts and private zoos allow the well-to-do to gaze on tigers, orangutans, and elephants. That's why even a looming apocalypse will not, in and of itself, motivate them to change course. The technology to prevent climate change exists, and it's getting better all the time. 
What we don't have is a social system that allows us to use it. The failure of world leaders to deliver meaningful political outcomes at COP26 will give green entrepreneurs more room to posture as a meaningful alternative. In that context, it is crucial for activists not to fall in behind corporate environmentalism, but rather to build an independent movement, one that prioritizes human need over capitalist logic. And in doing so, it's important for us to find all kinds of opportunities to confront the powerful, to confront the corporations, and take some power, take some power for ourselves in forcing those that have systemic power to change and do things differently. It won't always be pretty. Here's a piece published at The Nation, written by Mary Anais Heglar and Amy Westervelt. Nice isn't going to save the planet. No matter what he says today, climate activist Lauren McDonald said through tears in her opening lines at the TED Countdown panel in Edinburgh. Remember, Shell has spent millions covering up the warnings from climate scientists, bribing politicians, and even paying soldiers to kill Nigerian activists fighting against them, all whilst rebranding to make it look as though they care and that they have the intention of changing. She said this even though the TED conference's organizers had spent four hours pushing her to be more genteel, more neutral. She said it even though the man she was talking about, Shell CEO Ben Van Burden, was sitting on the stage with her. When he faltered in his response, McDonald would not share the stage with him any longer and walked out along with dozens of other activists. In the aftermath of the TED bust-up, Van Burden went home, opting not to attend COP26 because he said he felt, quote, unwelcome. At the same time, activists occupied London's Science Museum to protest its many sponsorship deals with fossil fuel companies. And in the United States, youth climate activists began what would become a two-week hunger strike to demand real climate action from the Biden administration. That strike ended when the group secured various promises from Democrats that a deal on climate policy would be reached. Only to have Senator Joe Manchin once again argue that Biden's Build Back Better bill is just too expensive, demanding that it be run through a thorough analysis by the Congressional Budget Office before he votes on it. Last week, those same activists, still weak from their hunger strike, joined a crowd to swarm Manchin as he drove out of a Washington, D.C. parking garage in his Maserati. Manchin calls these activists entitled. Others call them uncivil. At COP this week, Barack Obama chided them for yelling. The executive secretary of the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change, the U.N. entity that oversees the COP gatherings and whatever treaties come out of them, and organizer of the TED event, Christiana Figueres cried after McDonald's confrontation with Van Burden, not because she'd suddenly realized the folly of inviting an oil exec to a climate event, but because the conflict was all so ugly. 
These reactions are a profound willful misrepresentation of what civil means when it comes to civil disobedience. The word speaks to the power of ordinary people, to the coming together of the public. It does not mean civilized or courteous. The reality is that climate activists spent decades politely asking for the world's leaders to please act on this thing and that it's going to kill millions. They held respectful dialogue and respectful forums. They produced charts and came up with a plethora of acceptable solutions that, had they been enacted on a reasonable timescale, would not have posed a dramatic threat to the status quo. Over and over again, they met bad faith actors in good faith. And in response, they were lied to and saw little meaningful action. Is political corruption civil? Is it polite for a senator to risk dooming the planet before sailing off on the yacht he bought with the half million dollars he earns every year from the fossil fuel industry? Since 2018, the youth climate movement has reminded the world what people fighting for their lives looks like. It's not well-mannered, nor should it be. Did gracious requests to get, get rid of Jim Crow? Is there any justice movement in history that has succeeded on account of its proper etiquette? As Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. If you still think oil companies should be part of the solution or that they will voluntarily accomplish what needs to be done, let's take another look at Shell. Earlier this year, a Dutch court ordered the company to ratchet up its climate commitments and reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the board, not just their own emissions, but customers as well, by 45% by 2030. Shell is appealing that ruling, and in the meantime, has announced its own commitment to reduce emissions 45% by 2030, but only its internal emissions, which account for only 10% of the company's emissions overall. What they are willing to do is 90% less than what we need them to do. This is about a year after a handful of Shell's renewable energy leaders quit because the company's timeline for getting off fossil fuels was just too slow. At the time, some Shell executives said the company was actually doing plenty to transition away from fossil fuels. It just wasn't talking about it enough. Folks, that's code for more co corporate greenwashing. And that was a month after Shell got humiliated on Twitter for just such an approach. They were never engaging in good faith. They don't know how. Some folks say that Manchin's obstinance is proof that the in-your-face approach of youth climate activists doesn't work. But it's not like asking him nicely worked either. Moreover, what we see in internal documents from oil companies is that the youth climate movement is the first thing that's ever really made them worry about losing their social license. In a leaked 2020 marketing strategy doc from BP, executives worried that, quote, the new voices of global influence are changing from governments, NGOs, and corporates to the people. Uh-oh. Unlike a certain senator from West Virginia, it looks like, quote, the people might not be so easily influenced and paid off. According to BP's marketing consultants, the particular challenge of youth climate movement was their authenticity. Quote, can we become more relatable 
compassionate and authentic. The task, according to BP's consultants, quote, to engage and win back the trust of the people with the biggest voice. Again, those people they're referring to are youth climate activists, and it's not because they've been so congenial. If you're more concerned about manners than survival, understand that that is a luxury. If you are fighting for a livable future, isn't that worth a little discomfort? After all, if you find civil disobedience unpleasant, you're going to hate climate change. Compromise and civility are the comforts of the rich and powerful. If we want elites to act, we're going to have to make their complacency uncomfortable. And it's going to require some incivility. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. This is Malvina Reynolds with her song, It Isn't Nice. Thanks for listening. block the doorway it isn't nice to go to jail there are nicer ways to do it but the nice ways always fail it isn't nice it isn't nice you told us once you told us twice but if that is freedom's price we don't mind it isn't nice to carry banners or to sit in on the floor to shout our cry of freedom at the hotel and the store it isn't nice it isn't nice you told us once you told us twice but if that is freedom's price we don't mind we have tried negotiation and a three-man picket line mr charlie And he might as well be blind Now our new ways aren't nice When we deal with men of ice But if that is freedom's price We don't mind How about those years of lynching And the shot in Ever's back Did you say it wasn't proper Did you stand out on the track You were quiet just like mice Now you say we aren't nice Well if that is freedom's price We don't mind It isn't nice to block the doorway It isn't nice to go to jail There are nicer ways to do it But the nice ways always fail It isn't nice, it isn't nice Well thanks for your advice But if that is